Welcome to Key Change, the COC's new podcast exploring everything about opera from a fresh perspective. Hello and welcome. We're your hosts, Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. For everyone who tuned into our first episode, thank you. Thank you. And for those of you just joining us today in our second episode, welcome. I can't believe we're already here. Last week, we talked with some very special guests about their first experiences attending the opera. This week, we're going to go a little bit further and talk about how we actually hear opera. We're going to do a deep dive about the history of opera, um, specifically why opera sounds the way it does. And we're going to learn about the science of creating sound and how we make sure that the performers sound their best on stage. Uh, It certainly brought out my inner science geek, and I learned so much that I didn't know before. And we're really excited to share that with you today. Our first guest today is Dr. Hannah Chan Hartley. She gives us insight into the history of opera and its musical forms, and why opera sounds the way it does. Hannah is a musicologist who specializes in Wagner and 19th century opera. You also might recognize Hannah as one of the COC's pre-performance chat speakers. Hi there. We're here today with Hannah Chan Hartley. We're so excited that you're able to join us. Hi, Hannah. Hi, thank you for having me. And we're curious, you're a musicologist, and we'd love to give our listeners a sense of what is that? What does a musicologist do? What is musicology? (laughs) Wow, that's quite a question. Um, Basically, musicology, I mean, it's very simplest, is the study of music, and it can encompass a whole range of types of music. some ways that musicology is often divided is into looking at music from a historical perspective versus music from a contemporary perspective from all kinds of and music of all cultures. And um, so I, a musicologist who uh, looks at the historical perspective um, of music, uh, focusing my particular interest is, is the 19th century in particular. I'm wondering if you can speak to us a little bit about the different textures musically that we can expect. For example, you know, when we listen to a commercial and there's this big operatic moment that's in like the diamond commercial versus (laughs) sometimes when we hear those sparser textures where uh, there isn't as much orchestra, but there's a lot of dramatic storytelling happening. So like recits and arias and different ways that Mm. different textures that are used in the storytelling and how you prepare yourself or engage with that. I think part of that um, expectation comes from knowing when the opera was was written. So um, the basic structure of opera being recitatives and arias, and I will explain that in a second, but that basic structure um, was the early structure of opera from the the early Baroque period, so the early um, 17th century. And essentially what you have are uh, works that have two kinds of music. You've got recitative, which is basically Italian for recitation, you've got basically the singer is singing as if they're speaking. So it follows the patterns of speech, um, the free rhythm of speech and the the ups and downs of of talking. Recitative is 
because words are so important in recitative, you have minimal accompaniment. So often the accompaniment is a harpsichord and the cello. And recitative is often used for parts of the opera where you're advancing the action of the opera, for dialogue, and for when words are quite important uh, to the situation of the drama. Giulio e Miri, e quando con abisco di luce scesero i nubi in terra. And the other part is the aria. And these are the moments where the character is reflecting on what has happened. Uh, usually that character is thinking about their expressing their emotions about that situation. And um, it's almost as if time is suspended for that moment. And then they, they pause and, and think about it. Um, the parallel in a play, if you're thinking about Shakespeare, is the soliloquy in Aria is like a musical soliloquy. If you're listening to opera from that century um, and well into the 19th century, you, you've got these basic types of, uh, you have the recitative and aria, which are the basic types of music in, in opera. When you head into the 18th century with classical opera, especially um, comic opera, or opera buffa, you've got the inclusion of ensembles with that. And ensembles are really interesting because they, they actually give more dynamic movement to the story. You've got different characters. They're singing at the same time about the dramatic action that has happened. And usually their feelings are in a state of flux and they're going to come to some conclusion after this ensemble is over. So you might have three to four to six people singing each with their own individual parts, reflecting on their own particular moment in that drama. When you get into the 19th century, um, you still, especially in Italian opera with, with the early Italian uh, romantic composers like Donizetti, Bellini, Rossini, uh, still maintaining the the recitative aria and ensembles and, and Verdi as well. Uh, but you're starting to have more integration of some of these um, parts. They're not so segmented and they start to run and bleed into each other a little bit. The orchestra has more of a role. They're not just accompanying anymore, but actually driving some of the emotional action and then you get into Wagner, who's kind of in a, in a class by himself in a way, but he um, was very much responsible for creating a much more seamless drama, kind of removing this distinction between recitative and aria. Yes, I think if you know what kind, what period that opera was composed in, you can sort of expect certain forms and, and characteristics of that. One thing I hear as you're describing opera through the ages is that there's a continual growth. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. One thing that's really unique to opera is the lack of mics. All the singing is done under the power 
of the singer. And I was wondering how that might affect how the music is composed or structured. I can sort of speak to a bit about, um, a little bit about the way we would experience this in the hall. So if you look at in the 19th century, even if you compare the sizes of opera houses, European opera houses were quite small, but American opera houses even in the 19th century were huge. You're you're talking about, I think the Academy of Music in New York, which opened in the mid 19th century had 4,600 seats. The original Metropolitan Opera House had over 3,000 seats. So you're thinking these singers really had to change the way that they were projecting or certainly performing um, these operas in the States maybe compared to European operas. And obviously this is the case today. One thing I that was also that's also interesting is that the orchestra was not always in a sunken pit like we would understand for it to be for a long time. The orchestras would perform in a sunken area, but it was in front of the stage on level on the same level as the audience would have been. So the orchestra was very much exposed and you would see all that action in addition to the action on stage. And um, you might have orchestra pits coming up in the late 19th century, but not many theaters had them. And in a way, I would say Wagner in building the Festspielhaus in Bayreuth had a huge influence on where we would put the orchestra because he, the, the Festspielhaus had a, an enormous, I mean, it fit an orchestra of over 100 musicians, enormous covered pit, which nowadays we mostly have a partially covered pit. Um, but his idea was that we should hear, we should see the opera as a proto-cinematic experience, but the music should just kind of arise out of nowhere, um, like a soundtrack, essentially. Uh, you don't see the action at all. And I think even in the case of the Metropol- the original Metropolitan Opera House, when they were first doing Wagner operas, they didn't play in a sunken orchestra pit. But when they f- did the first ring cycle in 1889, that's when they they actually sank the pit. They had a they could have an orchestra pit, but they didn't. And but they actually officially sank it for the um, the first performance of the Ring Cycle. So I think there's there's something to to Wagner and Bayreuth being a part of changing the experience of how um, opera is experienced, especially with the orchestra. Yeah, I'm so glad you're bringing all of this up, Hannah, because in addition to, like you said, the context of the historical era and what the conventions were musically around the structures at the time, there's this whole sociocultural aspect to the way in which we attend the event mm-hmm. of opera. And I wonder if you could speak to that in terms of audience behaviors and atmosphere in the opera house and how that has, there's been transitions and it's a, there's an ebb and flow to that over time. It's not a consistent thing. We got to, yeah. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. So I kind of see this as happening in tandem with also the evolution of um, the the forms of opera. So certainly when you get to the 19th century, and this is when uh, you've got op- public opera houses everywhere and you've got the repertory um, of, of many different composers. Opera, is, and I'm thinking especially in the North American context, was entertainment, was a social entertainment. You had all classes of people in the opera house, but for the the wealthy elite of these cities that were attending opera, this was like a, this was social life, and they would sit in their boxes. Um, 
they would pay attention to the opera, but it wasn't a very focused attention necessarily. They, the lights were on, they would look at each other from afar and, you know, gossip about somebody else, maybe across, across the yeah. way. Um, they might turn their attention to the stage when, you know, a famous singer would be on the stage singing an aria. Um, they, I, I would say audiences were more interactive with the performance in the sense that they would react more. So with number operas, which are these operas with distinct ensembles and recitatives and, and arias, after a moment the ensemble is finished or the aria was finished, people would applaud. Sometimes they would, if they, they really wanted to hear it again, they would ask for an encore right there and then it kind of disrupted the flow. Of, of the performance, but they wanted to hear this. So, so, they, so they kind of reacted more um, to what was going on. And then people would, would do all sorts of things, you know, and all over the opera house there, the gallery was actually known as not the, the most salubrious place. So they actually developed the family circle in the opera house as, as a way of having families um, go to the opera and, and have it be a sort of appropriate thing thing to do to, uh, to go to the operas but then I think over time as you you have Wagner's music enter the sphere um, later into the 19th century there became this focus on what was going on on stage and again I, I reference Bayreuth because he I there may be other times when they were experimenting when other theaters were experimenting with slightly darkened um, right. auditoriums but yeah. certainly at Bayreuth he wanted it he didn't want it pitch black, uh, really dark, which is what ended up happening. That was a mistake. But um, he did want the lights dimmed so that the audience's attention was focused directly on the stage and not. And the way that the auditorium was set up, there were no boxes. You couldn't see each other. So you're very much listening and, and watching things unfold before you. And, and you were there to take this in and that it was a contemplative and more reflective experience playing out rather than this other kind of social activity uh, on top of it. Yeah, it's interesting with so many of these behaviors that have become embedded, like I think of a contemporary cinema experience where I go and they're very clear at the beginning, like turn off your cell phones and don't kick other people's seats and don't chew your popcorn too loudly, that some of these conventions that we've now absorbed into pop culture have their roots in operatic practice, or we can draw connections between them and yeah. operatic practice in the 19th century, like you said, and and a lot of the things that I appreciate about artistic experiences, like that absorption and that space mm-hmm. for contemplation mm-hmm. and reflection and having the lights below and just letting yourself be taken over by the storytelling, that yes. that too, you know, when we consider operatic practice, that there's deep connections uh, in terms of how that emerged over time. And I should, I should just add too that I think the fact that the Wagnerian music drama is a much more seamless uh, there isn't really that opportunity to react. It, it doesn't feel appropriate. And so in a way, the the creation of that kind of opera is also going to affect the way um, the audience behaves. I'm curious, and this is actually, Robin, like chime in as well, if you have thoughts on this, but I find that opera isn't something I can play in the background and just have on while I'm doing other things, whereas there's other styles of music that I'll put on while I'm cooking dinner, while I'm just, you know, going around the house doing things. And I'm wondering how that compares to your own experiences and like how you find like the quality of listening when you're at home, like as opposed to being in the opera house, for example. Oh, right. Um, I'm like you, I can't have opera playing in the background. <laughs> um, I, I've not, I've never really found it appealing to listen to opera just 
through audio. I mean, I know lots of people love listening to recordings and they'll listen to, you know, the Met broadcasts, for example. But I've never really been into that because I actually do like the the live experience of being in that moment, but also experiencing opera as a multimedia form. Um, that's the way I feel it should be experienced. And I do, you know, I've noticed even, especially in this time when um, we can only see things virtually, I also find watching uh, video performances to be not as, like I can't focus the same way as I can when I'm in the hall. It, it's it's harder <laughs> to be at home and I feel there's more distraction somehow. And then there's also the lack of the communal experience of, of being next to somebody else. I, I mean, obviously it's a communal experience because there's lots of other people watching around the world, but it's yeah. just not the same as being together with people experiencing that particular performance. Yeah. Sharing physical space versus sharing time can be (laughs) two very different things. Yeah. What's it like for you, Robin? Like what are your listening habits where that's concerned? Um, Well, I do listen to opera around the house, but I'm, I take it out of context. I'll say, Oh, I feel like listening to this aria right now. Mm. I can't listen to a whole opera. I feel kind of, empty because like you said in the house you're with other people but you're also feeling the orchestra and you're feeling the vibrations from the singers so it's kind of a physical sensation that washes over me that I really miss Mm -hmm. when I listen to opera at home. Um, Hannah are there any particular styles or composers of opera that you feel are more suited to that listening experience like without being in the opera house? Well, I think those um, operas where the focus is on the voice, and often a lot of these these arias are excerpted uh, in in on recordings. You so you can find you can find them as excerpts. You don't necessarily need the entire recording of the opera to to enjoy them, and and they are also found a lot in orchestral. I mean, right now we don't we can't really go to orchestra concerts either. But you if you go to um, orchestral concerts, you might have you might hear these um, portions as well, where again, the emphasis is more on the singer than than the orchestra, so to speak. Also operas with, where there's a clear distinction between these various types of forms um, lend themselves to being excerpted. So I think that's, that's one way people can get into uh, listening to opera. Right. And that's so, how I did too. Originally, so. Yeah, you can find like the hits of bel canto. Exactly. Exactly. You know that donuts at tea and Bellini, and and uh, have some listening as you're making your pasta for dinner or something yes. of that kind. <laughs> and uh, quickly, I'm I'm curious because of the continuum of attendance at opera that we've talked about. Do you have any predictions in terms of moving into the future and site specific opera and contemporary opera practice and how audience behaviors might be shifting or might evolve over the next twenty fifty years? I know there are lots of projects where the, where people are taking opera out of the opera house or more of the concert, the form, formal concert hall, go to less formal settings out, you know, in the cities, maybe out in the countryside, those, those kinds of things. I think that will still continue. I, I haven't yet really experienced, personally, haven't experienced opera in those settings. So I, I wonder how effective those are in getting people into opera. Um, I know sometimes 
the view is that taking opera out of the concert hall will make it less stuffy. And so I think there there is this desire to go back to a slightly more interactive, um, maybe interactive environment that was that was around in the earlier 19th century. <laughs> um, and, you know, orchestra concerts were like that as well in the 19th century, where where people were eating and drinking at the same time as listening to these concerts. And there was also a, a developing seriousness to the, to the, to the reception or the, yeah, to the listening of this music. There, there is this desire to go back a little bit to that. But I think a lot of us who might have experienced opera for a longer time within the confines of the theater will find that we can't easily change our, behaviors I still if I was to go to one of these performances I think I still would want to be absorbed and 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 enjoy joy something where I don't have the distraction of of people talking I, I that's just something that I prefer an experience I I prefer I just want to thank you for your time it was incredibly incredibly interesting and I'm going to be thinking about opera differently now so Thank oh, you. thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And yeah, like all your insights into how we listen and why we listen and why we've been trained to listen a certain way or different ways we could think about listening. Uh, it's been great to have you with us. Thank you. What I really loved about um, our time with Hannah is the way she described the opera houses to us, the different atmospheres and her, the mention of the family circle, because before the establishment of that, that these opera houses, she used the word salubrious, that they weren't the most salubrious place and actually had to look that up. So in the sense of like healthy or pleasant, because now we think about going to the opera house and it being, you know, a place where you do behave very properly and where you could take your children for this very pleasant, deeply enriching cultural experience. Whereas at a certain time you, you wouldn't have taken it wouldn't have been a place for a family field trip at all no people were gambling <laughs> yeah what yeah and uh also the fact that she made those connections between wagner and wagner's revolution of the opera going experience and we do know that wagner is a controversial figure and that is something we will return to right but for right now we're going to talk about how he impacted how we hear opera today with our next guest, Bob Essert. Now, Bob is the founder of Soundspace Vision. He's one of the world premier acoustical engineers, and he just happens to be the acoustician behind the Four Seasons Center. So let's hear what Bob has to say. Hello, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you let our listeners know where you're calling in from? I'm calling from Chester in the north of England today. Wonderful. Well, we're very fortunate to have this international flavor in today's conversation. And to start us off, we're hoping you could let us know, what is an acoustical engineer? Well, an acoustical engineer, or uh, sometimes we just say acoustical consultant, because actually there's a lot more than engineering. There's, there's physiology, there's psychology, there's arts, uh, there's other branches of science, and there's architecture. And there's engineering. Right. <laughs> um, and so our role covers um, these aspects of, of perception, of cognition, how we hear. And also, it really, it's translating uh, and connecting the, the human perception and human creation of music into terms that an architect and engineering team on a building can 
help develop into a product that can serve the the users, the players, the performers, the audiences, and indeed the technicians who are part of the show, producing the show. So really starts with how we hear and how we listen, but the knowledge base of experience and calculations Mm -hmm. and modeling uh, goes into all aspects of sound. And that includes the noise as well as the music. Yeah. It's, I, I, Remember, you mentioned psychology early on. Mm. And in terms of the audience experience, so say I'm someone headed to the opera house to experience an opera, what aspects of my experience, including my psychology, have you kept in mind in in crafting the experience that I'm going to enter into? The audience um, audiences in, in music venues care about, whether they know it or not, care about strength of the sound, the impact that it can give and the fortissimo, uh, the clarity, the right sort of balance between clarity and resonance or reverberation in a room. In opera, the clarity of the text is very important. We have the instrumental sound, we have the text coming through. So how that's perceived is important. And whether people know it or not, they may feel like they're not getting the words across, especially if it's in their first language or a language they can generally try to understand. If it's a language that just floats over the top anyway, and they're listening to the the vowels and the emotion and the music, maybe they don't care quite so much about the clarity. Um, Mm. Musicians need to communicate with each other on a concert stage or in the pit. So they have uh, a lot to care about there. And also how, how they feel supported. The singers feel supported more or less by the room. What comes back to them? They may be able to see the audience depending on the lighting, but they can also hear a sense of support from the from the audience, and but from the room geometry, from the surfaces pushing back to them. So they play the room as as a big instrument, really. And the musicians in the pit can hear a bit less about the room, but they they do care about sensing the balance between themselves and the conductors in the the uh, important position of trying to balance everything and to understand what it sounds like in the audience. Right. Um, I love what you just said about the singer playing the room. I myself am not a singer. That's not my entry point into opera, but it's a beautiful metaphor to to wrap our heads around. And um, we're curious about your work with Sound Space Vision, given that you've worked uh, all over the world, creating theaters and concert and lecture halls, performance art spaces. Could you share with us some of the considerations that you take into account when designing spaces of all kinds? So not just in the opera house, but how that differs when it's a lecture hall or when it's another type of venue. Yes. Well, we start by envisioning, uh, there's probably a, a oral word for mm. the parallel right. for evening, yeah. the quality of the sound, qualities of the sound that are appropriate for different activities or different arts even. It's opera, drama, uh, concert music, chamber music, but lectures, uh, mm. rock and roll, jazz, things that people listen to each other, uh, meetings, meeting rooms, right. where you're communicating one-to-one or one-to-many. So, there's the communication aspect of, of information transfer, and then there's the aesthetic aspect of, of qualities of the sound, uh, like color and light or, or shadow, that sort of thing. So, uh, I mean, Richard Bradshaw had quite strong ideas about wanting a rich orchestral sound for the Four Seasons. 
uh, and that was really kind of heading for a symphonic sound for the orchestra while the, the singers could kind of float over the top of that. Yeah. Not all opera houses sound this way. And, and not all opera repertoire or not all concert repertoire is served best by, by a big a voluptuous sound. From starting, starting from the qualities of the sound, clarity, reverberance, strength, impact, immersion. Do you feel immersed in the sound? Then we, we work then and think about the scale and size. I like to say that for different projects in different rooms, there are sort of four or five main aspects of acoustic, of, of architecture that we, we help the architects and engineers with. The biggest one, the big, biggest influence is the scale and size of the room. A big room, big auditorium will sound weaker for human, for natural acoustics, Right. A generated sound generated by performers without microphones and amplifiers. We can only put out so much sound. Now, opera singers put out the biggest sound per person of anything, except maybe trombones. <laughs> and then the next level is the shape and the geometry. So when you start with how big is the room, how many people, is it 2,000 people or is it 200 people or is it 20 people? Um, the shape and the geometry is very important. And so we, we work with that to help guide the sound to the listeners so it comes in strongly, so enough sound is reflected by the walls and the ceiling and the balconies in certain directions, so that the listeners in all of those places get enough and get enough immersion in the, in the sound and get enough strength and clarity of the sound. Um, there's Then there's the, well, the audience location. So the, the audience doesn't just get stuck in a on a piece of paper in a in a model actually locating thinking about where the audience is in relation to the performers and where the audience is in relation to each wall and the ceiling and the, the lower ceilings is all very important yeah. and of course then everybody understands well kind of probably understands the materials and textures are really important in acoustics uh, how reflective how absorbing of sound how much they scatter the sound. So we work at the finer scale with the architects on gui giving guidelines and then collaborating on roughness, smoothness, hardness, that sort of thing. All of those uh, start as guidelines and then the design process is a collaboration. Um, you'll probably hear me ducking out quite regularly. I'm not going to be as present in this episode, because I'm in downtown Toronto and there are so many construction noises happening outside my house right now, which makes me think of the Four Seasons Centre, where it is right above a subway and it is in the heart of downtown Toronto. Can you talk about the considerations that you had to make when creating a very opera-specific hall in such a densely populated urban area? Sure. It was... Um quite a challenge, but it was a known challenge. The uh, streetcars going on Queen Street, the subway on University tend to uh, shake the ground. There's, you don't always feel it when you're outside or in maybe an office building, but our goal for an opera theater is really silence during the performance. So what we've done is isolated the auditorium and the stage on rubber pads. The foundations of this building are split so that the, the footings are deep into the ground and the car park down there. Um, but then there's this layer of rubber pads and the auditorium sits on top of that. 
And those rubber pads are tuned, designed to be uh, have a natural frequency that allows the auditorium to be silent given the vibration frequencies of very low frequencies, bass frequencies, that the transit system generates. Now, one other thing is that is remarkable, really, the Richard Bradshaw Amphitheater out front is this wonderful space for music of all kinds. And when we were early in design, nobody really was understanding that that was going to be such a, a wonderful performance space or, or programmed so regularly for it performance. It is a beloved space, absolutely. But everybody enjoys sitting there. It's not as silent from the street noise as the auditorium is, but it's plenty silent enough for that overall experience to be wonderful. You see the cars zipping back and forth, but you don't really hear them for most of what's going on in the foyer. In many of the Italian and other European opera houses, there's more velour and velvet around. Uh, and we don't do this. In this house, in Four Seasons, it's big enough at 2,000 seats. It's much, much bigger than most European houses. So we, we want to preserve all the vocal power and all the or orchestral power we can without soaking it up in lots of curtains around the theater. So the surfaces are, are solid, but there's these little subtle um, additions on the surfaces to keep it from being harsh. That makes a lot of sense, having been in some opera houses in Europe and also um, at the Teatro Colón in Buenos Aires, and they all have such distinct, unique sounds. And nothing is as wonderful as the Four Seasons Center has been my experience in terms of acoustics. But I was wondering if there's more beyond just sort of the velvets and whatnot that do change the quality of the sounds from house to house. I have a theory that most Italian opera houses have a lower reverberation and higher clarity as they developed over time and people copied other houses. I mean, there's thousands of them in Italy. Uh, more like drama theaters. And indeed, they are used as the town drama theater as well. You know, a 400-seat opera house in any Italian city is the theater. Right. And it's opera some days and it's drama other days. Mm. But my my supposition is in the uh, 19th century, especially in the 18th and 19th century, most of the opera that people were listening to in Italy was first language for them. So the text and the clarity of the text, all the words need to come through, as in the drama theater and the, the history of opera um, connecting into the perception of, of text in the space. In North America, I think people are, are more uh, inclined to favor the, the orchestral sound and the vowel um, projection than the consonants and the clarity of, of the text if they aren't going to really be getting the language anyway. If they're, now that surtitles have been developed and become de rigueur everywhere, people are rely, Americans and, and others who, for whom it's a second or third language are, are using that to support the intelligibility. So I think the Italian sound, a drier, clearer sound, has some historical uh, reasons for it compared to let's say the the four seasons or the the late 20th century sound in bigger halls as well well i'm curious bob in terms of the things that we now take for granted as part of our physical and spatial experience at the opera house in terms of the seating how we're organized in terms of seats and where we're facing mm. and the level of the stage whether it's a raised stage or whether it's not i'm curious about how many of those aspects of our experience are deliberate and why okay um, they aren't all acoustical. Until the mid-20th century, stages were raked, sloped, um, and the 
orchestra floor in most old houses was flat or almost flat. Mm-hmm. So there's a um, there's a relationship, a sightline relationship between audience in the in the lower level of the house and the stage and seeing the performers. And if if you're going to have a flat orchestra level or stalls level floor or nearly flat, you need a stage that rises up at the back so people can see the performers upstage. Right. So we have that change evolution. Another is a very important one acoustically is the orchestra pit yeah. and how big it is, which came along with the development of music and the composers for symphony as well as opera uh, evolving from smaller orchestras to larger orchestras mm-hmm. uh, through the classical romantic and, and uh, 20th century. And how big do you make an open orchestra pit? There's, most Italian pits are fairly open with very little overhang few musicians under the stage. Everybody's out in the open. And for a smaller orchestra, that's okay. Uh, once you get to a, be a, a very large orchestra, it's it's quite a challenge to sing over the, the power of a 100-piece, 105-piece orchestra. Wagner, of course, buried the orchestra. He this, this radical move, he didn't want to see the orchestra. Some people think it was just an acoustical move. It was actually, we think, more of a visual move for him to do that. But he wanted the, or the each individual to be immersed in their own world, connection to the performers, and not really be part of the audience world and the orchestra world. But it had important acoustical effect too. The singers can be heard over the 105 pieces deep under a pit. What we the challenge we have today with opera companies that want to do uh, Mozart and Steve Reich and Wagner and the rest, uh, Rossini is to have a flexible orchestra pit. So the Four Seasons has multiple orchestra lifts, elevators, that can make the orchestra higher or lower, or raise, actually have a smaller orchestra pit or a larger orchestra pit. And that is not uncommon. In some houses, there's eight or nine orchestra lifts. We just have the two plus another manual, occasional um, variation in, in the Four Seasons. But there is an overhang as well. There's two and a half meters of of depth underneath where typically the louder instruments are are arranged. Not always. It's up to the the maestro as to how to set up the players in the pit. Right. We we didn't opt for a very very deep overhang because that takes away too much of the sound and it actually gives more difficulty for the players to work together in ensemble and hear each other. Bob, with your own experience as a musician and with your interests in music, when you think about the audience who's going to come to the Four Seasons Center and hear an opera and experience an opera, what do you hope they take away from their experience in this space that you had such a role in creating for them? I think I will answer that in with two, two parts. Um, one is I'd like them to be pulled into the world of the performance, that immersed uh, mentally, through the music, through the engagement with the performers, with the house being a, a vehicle for that, for encouraging the best performance as well. I'd like the audience to feel like the performers were inspired to give their very best because of how they connected with the audience. The house is is delivering a wonderful sound to the audience, but it's also delivering a wonderful sound to the performance so they can give their very best emotional 
uh, output to the audience. So that's how the, the whole thing works together. Living in England and working with opera companies here on smaller houses, uh, country house opera houses is a, a tradition here that's grown with Glyndebourne. Just about everybody in the opera world knows has been to Glyndebourne. And my wife, Anne, worked on that one um, as theater consultant. But in the last decade, we developed uh, a pavilion for Garsington Opera. And a couple of years ago, opened a new uh, small 400-seat theater for Neville Holt Opera Company. And that's about 400 seats. And Garsington is 600. And the intensity, living here, I've really got to appreciate the intensity of opera in a smaller room. Uh, as wonderful as Four Seasons is f for grand opera, and, and even for Mozart, but it's a it's a big, grand Mozart sound, or or Rossini sound. Hearing those pieces in what we're doing here in in England isn't the same as as a opera house in Italy. They're smaller, they're different, but it's it's more the acting uh, comes forth, the text comes forth, the chamber ensemble nature of the performance comes forth. Less money on scenery you know, less money on other things during the production, but it's it's intense in a different way. And I, I've come to really appreciate that. Thanks for mentioning that, Bob, because as um, as a stage director, I, I work with the singers in rehearsal. So I have that experience with them in studios and in rehearsal halls. And I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that it's a very different experience of hearing them in that instance than it is when we move into the hall. And it's also a great reminder that in addition to the beautiful gift you've given us in the Four Seasons Center, that there are all these different ways to experience opera um, within this country and on this continent and abroad as well. So to encourage people to go out and seek out those experiences and all those different acoustic environments mm -hmm. and see how that shapes your experience of the art form and the way you hear opera. So mm -hmm. thank you so much, Bob. You're welcome. Thank you. Bob has really enhanced my appreciation of the Four Seasons Center and how lucky we are to have it. What I hadn't thought a lot about was how you have to keep the outside out. Previously, I thought a lot about the sound being created in the space and the how and the why, but it hadn't really occurred to me until chatting with Bob that it's like, there's helicopters out there, there's ambulances out there, there's the subway, and all of that needs to be kept out so that we might have the, you know, this experience inside with the music. I had totally forgotten about that, and I forget about that every time I go into the Four Seasons Center because it's feels like its own little microcosm and how that's accomplished by it actually being this padded space that is separate from the outside world was really fascinating. I really liked his point about how attending different opera houses, you hear, you might hear the same opera very differently just depending on where the orchestra situated, how big the opera house is, how old it is. And the, the science behind that is mind boggling. I have this like, fantasy bucket list of wanting to be able to see operas in the opera house for which they were created for their premiere. With, and yeah, Bob too. really shared with us how that very much did impact 
um, not only the era, but the physical properties of the building and how the singer's voice in particular, like the chemistry between that, I guess it's not chemistry per se, it's more physics, I guess, is what I'm learning here. But um, we would say it in a more casual way, like the interaction between the singer's mm-hmm. voice and the physical structure. Um, so yeah, that's my fantasy bucket list. It'll never happen, I don't think, but wouldn't that be great? And also the um, this sort of chicken and egg relationship between the science and the physical properties of things that were available at the time, and then the art that was therefore created, how they were, they've been intertwined over centuries, like what is available and what we can create in those circumstances. Right. And how it's, how it's evolved socially too, like the sociopolitical element, people gambling in opera houses them doubling as bordellos at times, where we think of it as such a like high class and rarefied event where mm-hmm. you dress up in your fancy clothes and you go. And I mean, that happened back in the day too, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't go to the opera just to see the opera. Right. That's a relatively new invention. Yeah. Well, in this idea that, you know, the piece is having this overture where there's potentially no stage action happening on stage, but it gets everyone's attention. So let's say you're there and you're chatting and you're gambling and you're drinking your wine and all that. The overture being a means, this this musical construction, but having this purpose in the sense of get, getting everyone's attention. You've got like four to five minutes to find your seat and settle into place and prepare yourself for the beginning of the performance. How it's connected right. to the sociocultural happenings. Where now we hear the bell that ushers us all in to the auditorium before the overture, where that used to be the bell. Right. The overture was the bell. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very cool. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something I'm curious, Robin, what your take was on when Hannah shared with us. We talked about contemporary opera happening in these, not in opera houses, but happening in other places uh, where perhaps it's immersive or perhaps you are drinking and eating as you're attending that experience. What do you feel about that in terms of being a potential way forward or as a way of finding and developing new audiences? Where do you find yourself on that? I think it's amazing. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's more true to a lot of the, to the older styles, to pre-Mozart, basically, that it is taking it back into a more historic context even though we view it as a contemporary take. Mm -hmm. I find that very fascinating. What about you? Yeah, I think I find myself, I'm thinking about popcorn to tell you the truth, Robin, is what I'm thinking about right now. Because I'm going, okay, if I go to a movie and I get popcorn, the popcorn is part of my experience. I don't think I've ever eaten popcorn and watched an opera. Like I've never connected those two things, even though like through our conversation with Hannah in particular, we talked a lot about modern cinematic experience and how it, how it has its roots in 19th century opera practice. So now I want to sort of listen to an aria and eat popcorn and see what the result is. (laughs) I'd love to be able to have a glass of wine or drink a beer Right. I do want to give a a shout out to our colleagues out there in the opera world in Toronto and beyond who are experimenting with these different ways of doing things where you can be drinking a beer and listening to an aria and are combining all these things in um, innovative ways and experimenting. So thank you to all the experimenters and innovators out there. Robin, particularly in terms of hearing, like with our focus on sound in this episode, do you have a memory of a particular experience of hearing and experience of sound that has really stuck with you? Oh, God. Anytime I hear Strauss, Mm. um, Electra, 
the COC production of Electra. Yeah. And just that opening. And it's so intense. And the brass is so loud. And it just... It just physically overtakes your body. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Yeah. Like, it just... It's the perfect setup yeah. for the drama that's about to ensue. Yeah. How about yourself? Well, I find myself thinking about those moments where it's the first orchestra note read or the first sits probe and you've been rehearsing with piano in the rehearsal room. And then it's that first day where the orchestra joins, joins the mix, joins the party and the, what you've heard. And then maybe I hadn't really considered the instrumentation of that particular passage, but by virtue of, Oh, that thing I've been hearing on piano is actually a flute. Oh, it's actually the strings. Oh, it's all the strings. It's brass. And the difference between that and those little moments of discovery and jubilation as what was hitherto a piano becomes a full orchestra. Oh, I love that. Yeah. The whole piano reduction to actual orchestration is so, so amazing to experience. Mm -hmm. And not a thing that if you're just a casual opera attendee that you're privy to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in rehearsal, everything is reduced to piano. Yeah. For for a large portion of the rehearsals. Yeah. The the orchestra doesn't come in until a few rehearsals in. Yeah, totally. And it changes the color of a moment, for example, in terms of what we the atmosphere of it, I mean, um, with those textures changing. How does that impact your stage direction and your choices? That's a, that's a great question, Robin, because I know I played oboe in high school, like that was my band instrument. So I have this affinity for a ho- an oboe, particularly when it's featured in a moment. So if it has a solo line, or if it has a very particular presence, uh, I like to give it some attention. But it's nice too, and this is this is connected to Wagner too, in terms of like a leitmotif. So connections that are made between particular characters, particular relationships, or special objects in the plot, in the drama, and how he connects particular melodies with those. So I think it's sometimes really fun in terms of a staging or even just working through things with a singing actor to, you know, to, to hang, to hang ideas on things relationship wise or intention wise, and to connect those with particular instruments. For example, like what if, um, what if the violins are memory? What if the, and, and there's a lot of word painting and, and painting that goes on with the orchestra that composers are doing regardless. Like they've done a lot of that groundwork. They've established it. So it's really uncovering what they've already embedded in the score. But I love that. I love associating things to particular sonorities, particular combinations of instruments or solo instruments. I love the opportunity they give us to create even more meaning than what's already there. Yeah, I loved I love in all of Wagner's work how he does that. And then Puccini took it to another level mm-hmm. with his version of the leitmotif. Mm-hmm. And when it's directed well, when everything comes together, you're trained to every time you hear that certain sound, you just know yeah. that, you know, this is Mimi. Mm-hmm. This is Rodolfo. Yeah. This is Butterfly. Like, and you know, their emotional experience just cued by the music. Yeah. And what you're saying about being, whether we're conscious of it or not, we've been trained to respond to a certain way to certain sounds, certain motifs. And Bob mentioned that too, I think in terms of, he says, without knowing it, we're all seeking a certain sound. Like he spoke about clarity and strength, I think was so. And the fact that we can respond to something and to know whether we like it or to know whether um, we're giving it a sort of thumbs up or not, 
without even necessarily having the vocabulary and the understanding of acoustics, for example, to frame what we're responding to. But there's something in us that knows or that responds to it. Absolutely. I really appreciated how Bob brought our attention back to the fact that opera is such a collaborative art form too. And we, we typically can see that in terms of the art making because the orchestra's there, the maestro's there, the singers, we see the design elements. But also we were reminded that there's a whole team of people who built the opera house, who have these science backgrounds, engineering backgrounds, who helped create the experience that you have in the opera house. And also, uh, in terms of collaboration and evolution through the ages, is that Hannah really brought our attention to the fact that these musical structures that exist in the opera canon, they vary era to era, from the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, that that offers us a whole other window into understanding and appreciating what we're hearing in terms of the musical structures um, that contain and inform the, uh, the storytelling. Understanding that history is inc- is helpful and understanding the popular stories and the stories that tend to go with certain what was popular at certain times how it matches the music and the music matches the politics and it all gets intermarried and coming up in our next episode we actually talk about storytelling and in, in opera we'll be talking to Taya Kasahara and Ravi Jane Yeah. And Ravi is a stage director who works uh, in various disciplines and combines elements of classical works and contemporary considerations in really novel and interesting ways. And we're so excited to talk to both Ravi and Taya about what exists historically in terms of stories that were told and in conventional structures that inform those stories, and then contemporary practice, which shows us either a very straightforward interpretation of those stories or a more a more creative and inventive way of accessing those stories here and now. Taya does some really interesting work similarly to Ravi with taking historic work and contemporizing it. Um, So I'm really looking forward to what they have to say on how they approach storytelling. Yeah. And so thank you for going on this journey with us today about how we hear opera and what opera sounds like. And if you're able, please join us next time with Taya and Ravi and uh, with Robin and myself. Looking forward to it. Be the first to find out about free events and concerts from the COC by signing up for our monthly eOpera newsletter at coc.ca slash eOpera. Thank you to all of our supporters for making Key Change possible. This week, we want to especially thank every COC member, subscriber, and donor for coming on this journey with us as we explore new ways to share opera's unique power. So to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Key Change, wherever you get your podcasts. Key Change is produced by the Canadian Opera Company and hosted by Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. To learn more about today's guests and see the show notes, please visit our website at coc.ca slash keychange. <laughs>